three of our series on the nonconformists, the Puritans, and uh, we haven't yet even gotten to some of the other dissenting groups within England in the 16 and 1700s, although we will. Um, but today we're going to focus mostly on the period of uh, the 1600s and the English Civil War and the important people involved in that struggle. Okay, so as we recall from previous sessions, we know that the Puritans and other dissenting groups proved to be a thorn in the sides of English monarchs, beginning with Elizabeth I and continuing through the reign of James I. And the picture you see up on the screen is, uh, again, James I. He's the James of the King James Bible. He commissioned the writing of the King James Bible. Uh, and although he was a fairly devout monarch, um, he was not a Puritan. Most rulers in Europe believed, as did James, that the state of monarchy is the supremest thing on the earth. For kings are not only God's lieutenants upon earth and sit upon thrones, but even by God himself, they are called gods. Psalm 82.6, which, you know, you can look up 82.6, Psalm 82.6, and you might think after reading, and I encourage you to read that verse in the context of the whole psalm to fully get the meaning, but uh, James had his interpretation of this psalm, and we might have a somewhat different interpretation. James was a Calvinist, and he had once signed the negative confession of 1581 favoring the Puritan position. The negative, or the second Scots confession, was a strongly anti-papal statement adopted by King James, his council and court, and by all the Scottish people in 1581. Remember, James was a Scotsman. In 1603, the millinery petition, which claimed a thousand signatures, presented Puritan grievances to King James, and in 1604, the Hampton Court Conference was held to deal with them. The petitioners were sadly in error in their estimate of James, who had learned by personal experience to, to resent Presbyterian clericalism because the, the people who held to Presbyterianism were against the Episcopal system of the Church of England. They didn't want bishops. They wanted a more democratically organized church government. At Hampton Court, James coined the phrase, no bishop, no king. The Puritans wanted an end to the Episcopal church structure of the Church of England. And I should note here also, as I proceed on through this session, I'm going to abbreviate Church of England down to COE, because it's just easier. Uh, the Episcopal church structure of the Church of England fit very well within the hierarchical, social, and political feudal system of royalty, aristocrats, nobility, gentry, and commoners. The Puritans favored the Presbyterian form of church government much more in tune with the political and social structures favored 
by the emerging merchant and middle classes. Well, I'm oh, sorry. So the Episcopal system of church government is, and this is the form it took within the Church of England, you have the Archbishop of Canterbury at the top, kind of like the Pope in the Roman Catholic Church in terms of authority, and then from there you have a, a church hierarchy of professional clergymen who had high ranking in the church, all the way working down to the bishops over individual parishes or bishoprics. The Anglican term usually is bishopric. Uh, more of the Roman Catholic term would be parish. Um, also, uh, Church of England would also use the term diocese. So that was a particular, you know, a diocese would be like, let's say Montgomery County, Dayton, Ohio. You know, and there probably is at an Episcopal diocese centered within Dayton uh, in the current Episcopal church in America. Um, so that's how the church government ran. And although at the, at the individual church level, um, individual leaders in the community might have positions of importance in managing local church affairs, in an organization called the Vestry, for example, church finances, administering you know, the ongoing maintenance and support of the work of the church, the buildings and so forth, the teaching ministry of the local vicar, um, and you know, the various um, charitable initiatives that the church would have and so forth. So at the local level, Englishmen and you know, this is true really for any Anglican throughout the world. At the local level, you can have uh, laymen taking an active role in church affairs, but that's really only at the local level. And ab above that, in terms of the overarching denomination, the leaders are going to be clergymen of different ranks. In the Presbyterian-style churches, Again, it's much more democratic. Um, many Presbyterian denominations may have a central hierarchy, but lay people have a much broader, wider role to play in church government in Presbyterian-style churches. Now, keep in mind, there's a, there's a difference here, and you'll notice on the slides, I write the word Presbyterian or Presbyterianism, with a lowercase p, I am not referring necessarily to a specific Presbyterian with an uppercase p name. Okay, so there are different churches that have the term Presbyterian in their name, um, but I, in, in this session, we're really talking more about a general approach to church government and organization. And unfortunately, I wish I could go into more detail in that, and, um, but I've got a lot of material here, so we do need to move on. So while England, Scotland, and Ireland were ruled by kings and queens and had been for centuries, there had also been a strong desire of the aristocracy and even the lower classes for representative government, 
dating as far back as the 1215 Magna Carta. If, you do, if you've never heard the term Magna Carta, here's your homework assignment. Get on Wikipedia or Google or where, however you want to search. Get on the internet and search on the term Magna Carta and study a little bit about that. Many members of parliament, or MPs, during the reign of James I supported the nonconformists, and many of them were Puritans. These MPs argued that the canons of 1604 at the Hampton Court Conference had not been ratified by parliament and therefore did not have the force of law. Moreover, men of Puritan sympathies remained close to the seat of power during James's reign. In the Convocation of 1604, again, that Hampton Court Conference uh, that I've mentioned, James had ordered church authorities to draw up the constitutions and canons against nonconformists. Conformity in ecclesiastical matters was imposed in areas where nonconformity had survived under Elizabeth. Yet, the Puritans argued, these canons were not the law of the land, since they had not been ratified by Parliament. So I think what you can begin to see here is, you know, the king is saying one thing, Parliament hasn't passed these laws as laws per se. In other words, the people's representatives in Parliament haven't given the force of law behind these proclamations, so they're not going to recognize this as law. And again, the Puritans and other dissenting groups, they were doing things like having churches in their homes. They were praying extemporaneous prayers in these, you know, informal gatherings of Christians in homes. In other words, they were not praying out of the Book of Common Prayer all the time. They were making up their own prayers. We know they had their own Bibles that they could read in English. Tyndale's versions, uh, you know, all of these different versions were circulating throughout England. Um, you know, there were a lot of people who weren't conforming to the Church of England and what the king wanted, how, how the king wanted everyone to conduct their religious lives. Despite the presence of controversy, Puritan and non-Puritan Protestants under Elizabeth and James had been united by adherence to a broadly Calvinistic theology of grace. Much of the Archbishop of Canterbury, John Whitgift's restraint in handling Puritans, beginning in 1583, can be traced to the prevailing Calvinist consensus he shared with the nonconformists. So in the late 1500s, early 1600s, everybody is pretty much on the same page regarding theology, but this would change. Even as late as 1618, the English, or Church of England, COE, delegation to the Dutch Synod of Dort, remember the Dutch were all in, in a kerfuffle between Calvinism and Arminianism, and they had their Synod of Dort, and there were Englishmen present. They supported the strongly Calvinistic decisions of that body. Under Charles I, who reigned from 1625 to 1649, son and heir of James I, this consensus broke down, creating yet another rift in the Church of England. And I've emphasized this point. This is really important here. Anti-Puritanism in matters of liturgy and and church government or organization 
became linked with anti-Calvinism in theology. So now that Arminianism as, as a, you know, was developing theologically, it became associated more with Anglican positions. The leaders of the anti-Puritan and anti-Calvinist party, notably Richard Montague, whose new gag for an old goose in 1624, first linked Calvinism with the abusive, as it was regarded at that time, term Puritan, drew upon the development of Arminianism in Holland. In contrast to Calvinists who emphasized God's predestination of the elect to salvation and damnation to the rest of humanity, Arminians stressed God's offer of salvation to all humankind. English Arminians added to this an increased reverence for the sacraments and liturgical ceremony within the Church of England. Richard Neal, the Bishop of Durham, was the first significant patron of Arminians among the COE hierarchy. London was regarded as the stronghold of Puritanism, and a policy of thorough anti-Puritanism was begun there by COE authorities. Um, not surprisingly, the capital city uh, had both Puritans and non-Puritan or Church of England adherents, and certainly, you know, being so populous, um, the church has to start stamping out Puritanism in the capital city. Another thing to keep in mind is during this period, the universities of Oxford and Cambridge, the students at those universities became embroiled in theological debate regarding Arminianism versus Calvinism. Charles I made William Laud the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1633, and he was clearly a favorite of Charles. Laud promoted Arminians to influential positions in the church and subtly encouraged the propagation of Arminian theology. His fortunes turned, however, when he attempted to introduce into the Church of Scotland a liturgy comparable to the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. The staunchly Presbyterian and Calvinist Scots rebelled. When Laud's liturgy was introduced at the Church of St. Giles at Edinburgh, uh, a famous church where John Knox was pastor for a time. A riot broke out leading to a popular uprising that restored Presbyterian church structure in Scotland. The Scots were worried that if they accepted the Book of Common Prayer, the next thing would be the shift to uh, a, a system of bishops as in the Church of England. And then once you had the Book of Common Prayer and a system of bishops uh, similar to the Church of England, it would just be a matter of time before the Church of England would simply take over Scotland. Charles sought to put down the Scots in the so-called Bishops' Wars of 1639 to 1640. Now, to wage war, Charles needed to raise revenue, but the only institution that could approve new taxes was Parliament, which had feuded with Charles in the 1620s and was dissolved by him in 1629. So at this period in British history, Parliament has some independence from the king, but the king still has the power to get rid of Parliament. However, the people will not pay taxes unless their representatives in Parliament approve the king's uh, taxes. So it became a big stalemate. 
In April 1640, the short parliament met, but was quickly dissolved by Charles because its members wanted to discuss a list of grievances before approving funds for the war. Charles proceeded against the Scots, but his armies were no match for Scottish forces. In 1640, he was faced with a Scots army of occupation in northern England, and they were demanding money as part of its settlement. Short of funds, Charles was forced to call Parliament again, and this time he would be forced to deal with it. And here we have a portrait, and that one is uh, rather dark as well. All these northern Europeans with their dark palettes. <laughs> it's... Uh, that's how it was. Uh, Charles I, second son of James I, was born on November 19, 1600, in Scotland, and he was not very popular with many in England. He ascended to the throne in November 1612. Again, he was 12 years old, so he, his, his kingship, his monarchy, was in the care of adult regents until he himself reached adulthood. Now, his marriage to the French Catholic princess Henrietta Maria in 1625 made him very unpopular in England. Remember, England, or France and England are mortal enemies from way, way back. And, you know, Charles I, their king, is now the brother-in-law of the king of France. That's very worrisome if you're an Englishman. At the time, the Parliament of England did not have a large permanent role in the English system of government. It functioned as a temporary advisory committee and was summoned only if and when the monarch saw fit. Once summoned, a Parliament's continued existence was at the king's pleasure since it was subject to dissolution by him at any time. Yet in spite of this limited role, Parliament had acquired over the century de facto or practical powers of enough significance that monarchs could not simply ignore them indefinitely. For a king or queen, Parliament's most indispensable power was its ability to raise tax revenues far in excess of all other sources of revenue at the Crown's disposal. Charles I provoked further unrest by trying to raise money for the war through a forced loan, a tax levied without parliamentary consent. In, in November 1627, the test case in the King's Bench, the Five Knights case, found that the King had a prerogative right to imprison without trial those who refused to pay the forced loan. On May 26, 1628, Parliament adopted a petition of right calling upon the King to acknowledge that he could not levy taxes without Parliament's consent, not impose martial law on civilians, not imprison them without due process, and not quarter troops in their homes. Now think, 148 years later, American British colonists would write up a document called the Declaration of Independence, and within that document, which I encourage you all to, you know, get on the internet and you can read it for yourself. If you haven't ever done that, please do that. And you will find that much of the language in the, in the Declaration of Independence, uh, where they list their grievances against the King of England, echoes these very ideas. 
But that, that was 148 years in the future at this point. Charles assented to the petition on June 7th, but by the end of the month, he had prorogued a legal term, meaning that he discontinued without dissolving parliament. It's kind of a distinction without a real difference. And he reasserted his right to collect customs duties without authorization from parliament. So one thing the king could do is, um, you know, we think of it today as tariffs. So when goods are imported from other countries into the United States, people have to pay tariffs to do so. And that was one source of revenue for the King of England at that time. But to actually tax the English people, only Parliament could approve that. Increasingly, members in the House of Commons were Calvinist Puritans eager to spread Puritan influence th throughout the nation. Arminianism in theology, liturgy, and government was linked in the popular mind with Catholicism. Fears of a Spanish Catholic con conspiracy to undermine Protestant England became widespread at this time because not only do the English have to worry about the French, they have to worry about the Spanish as well, both Catholic nations. The first act of the Long Parliament from 1640 to 1653, as it came to be called, was to set aside November 17, 1640 as a national day of fasting and prayer. Charles, it had become apparent, was the patron of the Arminians and their attempt to redefine Anglican doctrines. Arminians, in turn, favored Charles's causes against the Puritans in Parliament. This alliance held despite increasing pressure on Charles to co cooperate with Parliament on economic and military matters. The resulting civil war between the forces of the king and those of parliament was hardly just a religious struggle between Arminians and Calvinists. Social and economic forces involved class differences as well. However, conflict over religion played an undeniably large role in bringing about the Puritan Revolution. As Protestantism split, so did English society. And also at issue was the idea of the rule of law, or lex rex, versus the primacy of the king's personal rule, rex lex. So lex rex says, even the king is not above the law of the land. And he's certainly not above God's laws. We all, from the most common peasant all the way up to the monarch himself must obey the laws of God. Now, of course, you know, the converse is popular with monarchs and, and the aristocracy in general. So the idea of the personal rule of the king, in other words, he makes the laws. He is above the law, in effect. That's what rex lex means. The king makes the law. Fighting broke out in 1642, and after the first battles, members of Parliament called together a committee of over 100 clergymen from all over England to advise them on the good government of the church. Now, let's begin to think about how this was shaping up. This would be like, you know, our current president is Trump. So it would be like the president commanding the armed forces to fight against... Congress's army, that's kind of what this was like. 
You know, imagine our, our U.S. Congress voting to appropriate to itself funds to raise its own army to fight the army of the president. That's kind of what it was like. Okay, so the Westminster Assembly of Divines, uh, this group of 100 clergymen, first met on July 1st, 1643, and continued daily meetings for more than five years. So, you know, the Puritans were quite hopeful that their representatives within this group of the Westminster Assembly of Divines would begin to gain control, not just over the churches, but begin to influence control over the government itself. Parliament, however, needed Scotland's military help. Again, we're going to Scotland for some help. It adopted the Solemn League and Covenant, which co committed the Westminster Assembly to develop a church polity or structure of church government close to Scotland's Presbyterian form. Now, also at this time, this was a time of great unrest, as you can imagine. Um, you know, English society is really starting to fracture. A small determined assembly group of they called themselves the dissenting brethren held out for the freedom of the church congregations or independency. Separation of church and state was really what they were after. Others called Erastians argued that the church was subordinate to the state and wanted to limit the offenses under the power of church discipline. Because both groups had support in Parliament, and there were others uh, with differing views, the reform of church government and discipline was frustrated. Dissent within the assembly was negligible compared with dissent outside it. Pamphlets by John Milton, Roger Williams, and other prominent Puritans pleaded for greater freedom of the press and for freedom of religion. Such dissent was supported by the New Model Army, again, Think of it like Congress raising its own army. A parliamentarian force of 22,000 men, first led by Sir Thomas Fairfax as commander-in-chief, and then Oliver Cromwell as second-in-command. The army's support for this dissent was made all the more significant because its leaders had become the real power in England after their defeat of royalist forces. So the Puritans were lining up with Parliament, and again, they had raised their own army, they were Calvinist in their theology, and they were fighting against those who supported the king, King Charles, and most, as you would expect, most of the nobility, the aristocrats, the lords, the earls, the knights, and dukes, and so forth. Uh, they comprised the royalist forces. In effect, the English Civil War was a war between Parliament, which had raised its own army, and the King of England, who formed an army primarily from the nobility who supported him, known as the Royalists. Scottish forces joined in, sometimes on the side of parliamentary forces for religious reasons, and sometimes in support of the Royalists for money. Charles's forces controlled roughly the Midlands, Wales, which is on the far western side of England, the West Country, and Northern England. He set up his court at Oxford. He basically had to leave London. 
Parliament controlled London, the southeast, and East Anglia, eastern parts of England, and they had the allegiance of the British Navy. Very important. The royalists or cavaliers were loyal to the king and were primarily wealthy aristocrats. They dressed the part and often had long hair. They could afford horses and armor and muskets. But not all aristocrats were on the side of the royalists. There were some Puritan aristocrats who sided with the parliamentary forces. The roundheads, as they came to be called, were the Puritan supporters of parliament. They came from the middle and working classes primarily and were anti-COE and Calvinist in their religious outlook. Roundhead generals and other officers had horses, but the majority of roundhead soldiers were infantrymen marching on foot into battle. The roundhead infantrymen armed with long pikes, and you can see this depicted in uh, here, these infantrymen with these very long, heavy shafts made of wood with a basically a small sword uh, affixed to the, um, the point of the, the long stick, in effect. And they also had, they were also musketeers. They had muskets, early form, I should say early forms of muskets. If you've ever seen like, um, American War for Independence reenactments, you'll see the colonial soldiers holding muskets. They look like rifles, but of course they were much more primitive compared to the modern rifle. And it took a long time to load them, and you only had one shot, and once that shot was gone, you would then have to take, I guess, 20 minutes or a half an hour to reload that gun. It took a long time. Uh, so basically, you had one shot. So they used the pikes to keep the, ca uh, the cavaliers, who were on horseback and had smaller uh, firearms, keep them at bay while the musketeers could fire at the men on horseback. The parliamentarians controlled London and the coastal areas, giving them a profound logistical advantage during the wars. And this chart shows four different maps of England, four different years, starting in 1642, all the way up to 1645. And uh, it might be a little bit difficult to see, but it, um, there are purple shaded areas that represent the control, the different uh, parts of England that were controlled by the king's forces. And over time, you see that purple shaded area diminish. And by 1645, the parliamentarian forces, or the roundheads, had control of much of England. Late in 1648, the victors feared that the Westminster Assembly and Parliament would reach a compromise with the defeated Charles that would destroy their gains for Puritanism. Essentially, the Roundheads had achieved a military coup. Their leaders, some of whom, like Cromwell, had been MPs, came to control Parliament and the army. In December 1648, Parliament was purged of members unsatisfactory to the army and in January 1649, King Charles was tried and executed. So let that sink in for a moment. The English killed their king. 
1648. Or rather, sorry, January 1649. This was the first time in history, in European history, that a major European power had executed its monarch. The execution of Louis XVI in the French Revolution did not occur until 1793, 145 years later. Without the king, how would the new government of England be constituted? After the execution of the king, the House of Lords and Parliament was abolished. So Parliament uh, was a bicameral type system, uh, kind of like our Congress. We have a Senate and we have a House. But the Parliament was comprised of the House of Lords, all of whom were aristocrats, and many bishops served in the House of Lords as well. And the, and the, uh, um, the House of Commons, that's where the representatives of the people, the MPs, uh, stood up for the people and governed. So you had the House of Lords and the House of Commons, but not only are we going to get rid of the king, we're going to get rid of the House of Lords. We're going to get rid of all these aristocrats. Both Parliament and the Assembly, uh, the Westminster Divines, continued to sit on a rump basis, that's the term they used, because it contained only a remnant of their membership after the purges. In May 1649, the government of England was constituted as a commonwealth. Again, homework assignment. If you don't know what a commonwealth is, Google that. Learn about it. And Oliver Cromwell, one of the leading roundhead generals, emerged as England's Lord Protector. So he essentially took the place of the executive, in this case, the king. Okay, that's a little bit better picture, I think, of Oliver Cromwell, a little easier to see. Now, Oliver Cromwell had had a conversion experience in his early adulthood. He was a Puritan who saw the judgment and mercy of God operating in human affairs. He believed that his military success was a sign of God's blessing of his work. Cromwell came from the lower ranks of the nobility. He was a descendant of Thomas Cromwell, Henry VIII's chief minister. So his family had some standing and importance in England. Cromwell was the eldest surviving son of the younger son of a knight, but as such, he did not have the social, political, and economic advantages that the uh, direct descendant of the knight's eldest son would have had. He inherited a modest amount of property, but was brought up in the vicinity of his grandfather's estate, who regularly entertained the king's hunting party. His education was greatly influenced by evangelical Protestantism and a powerful sense of God's providential presence in human affairs. In his 30s, Cromwell sold his freehold land and became a tenant on the estate of Henry Lawrence at St. Ives in Cambridgeshire, about 60 miles north of London and very close to the University of Cambridge. Lawrence was planning at that time to emigrate to New England, and Cromwell was almost certainly planning to accompany him, but the plan failed. 
Cromwell ended up marrying Elizabeth Borchier on August 22, 1620 in London. Elizabeth's father was a London leather merchant who owned extensive lands in Essex and had strong connections with Puritan gentry families there. He married well. The marriage brought Cromwell into contact with Oliver St. John and other leading members of the London merchant community and behind them the influence of the, War the Earls of Warwick and Holland. A place in this influential network would prove crucial to Cromwell's military and political career. Cromwell had been elected to Parliament in 1628, but was only there for about a year when Charles I dissolved Parliament. He made one speech which was not well received, and his tenure in Parliament at this time was not impressive. When Charles I called for Parliament in 1640, Cromwell returned, but the legislative body only met for three weeks. During the long Parliament of 1640, Later, Cromwell presented a petition for the release of John Lilburn, a Puritan. So far, he doesn't seem like a very revolutionary guy. For the first two years of the Long Parliament, Cromwell was linked to the Puritan aristocrats in the House of Lords and the members of the House of Commons with whom he had established family and religious links in the 1630s, such as the Earls of Essex, Warwick and Bedford, Oliver St. John, and Viscount Sancel. At this stage, the group had an agenda of reformation. Again, remember, not all aristocrats were on the Church of England side. There were many aristocrats who, were, who had Puritan sympathies. At this stage, the group had an agenda of reformation. The executive, or the king, should be checked by regular parliaments and the moderate extension of liberty of conscience. So again, room for dissenting religious pe uh, uh, people of dissenting religious views. Cromwell also gave the second reading of the annual Parliament's bill and later took a role in drafting the root and branch bill for the abolition of episcopacy. Again, wanting a major change in how the Church of England was structured. The Root and Branch Petition was a petition presented to the Long Parliament on December 11, 1640. The petition had been signed by 15,000 Londoners and was presented to the English Parliament by a crowd of 1,500. The petition called on Parliament to abolish episcopacy from the roots and in all its branches. Legislation was drafted in Parliament incorporating the key points of the petition in May 1641, but it was not draft, voted into law. So somebody had written up the bill, the legislation, but they were not successful in getting enough votes to pass it. Parliament did exclude the COE bishops from the House of Lords and then passed the Bishops' Exclusion Act in December 1641. The Bishops' Exclusion Act became effective in February 1642. So the aims of the Root and Branch Bill would ultimately be achieved in October 1646 when Parliament passed the Ordinance for the Abolishing of Archbishops and Bishops in England and Wales and for settling their lands and possessions upon trustees for the use of the Commonwealth. Keep in mind that the Church of England 
like the Roman Catholic Church before it in Henry VIII's time, owned a lot of land and had a lot of money. And certainly if we're gonna get rid of the bishops, that means we can take the land and the money. Cromwell believed that the individual Christian could establish direct contact with God through prayer and that the principal duty of the clergy was to inspire the laity by preaching. He had contributed out of his own pocket to the support of itinerant Protestant preachers or lecturers and openly showed his dislike of his local bishop, a leader of the high church party, which stood for the importance of ritual and Episcopal authority. Cromwell, in fact, distrusted the whole hierarchy of the Church of England, although he was never opposed to a state church. So he did not come out on the side of separation of church and state. Again, that's, you know, much too revolutionary for this point in history. He therefore advocated abolishing the institution of the Episcopate and the banning of a set ritual as prescribed in the Book of Common Prayer. He believed that Christian congregations ought to be allowed to choose their own ministers who should serve them by preaching and by extemporaneous prayer. As events drifted toward the Civil War, Cromwell had begun to distinguish himself not merely as an outspoken Puritan, but also as a practical man capable of organization and leadership. In July 1642, Cromwell obtained permission from the House of Commons to allow his constituency of Cambridge to form an armed companies for its defense. So in other words, during the time that the parliamentary forces were beginning to gather momentum, Cromwell is uh, right up there in the leadership uh, working to do this. In August of 1642, he rode to the University of Cambridge to prevent the colleges there from sending their silver and gold plate to be melted down for the benefit of the king. Keep in mind, in those days, people of means ate on and used cutlery that was made of silver and gold. And if you wanted to raise money quick, you would just go through your household, take all the gold and all the silver in whatever form it was, candlesticks, plates, what have you, melt it down, sell it, and that way you can get money uh, to do whatever it is you want to do. As soon as the war began, he enlisted a troop of cavalry in his birthplace of Huntington, even though mostly the Roundheads had infantry, in other words, soldiers marching into battle on foot, they did have some units of cavalry. As a captain, he made his first appearance with his troop in the closing stages of the Battle of Edgehill, October 23, 1642, where Robert Devereux, 3rd Earl of Essex, was Commander-in-Chief for Parliament in the first major contest of the war. So again, there were some aristocrats who were on the side of the Puritans and Parliament. And those men, with their resources, because these were men of means, they had money, they had land, um, they could serve as leaders for these armies. During 1643, Cromwell acquired a reputation both as a military organizer and a fighting man. From the very beginning, he had insisted that the men who served on the parliamentarian side should be carefully chosen and properly trained, and he made it a point to find loyal and well-behaved men regardless of their religious beliefs or social status. 
Appointed a colonel in February, he began to recruit a first-class cavalry regiment. While he demanded good treatment and regular payment for his troopers, he exercised strict discipline. If the troops swore, they were fined. If drunk, put in the stocks. If they called each other roundheads, thus endorsing the contemptuous epithet the royalists applied to them because of their close-cropped hair. Remember, at this point in history, aristocratic men had nice flowing locks, and the roundheads mostly had short-cropped hair. And uh, in that picture of Cromwell, you can see his hair is short. Uh, whereas if you look at the picture of Charles I, he's got long hair flowing across his shoulders. Uh, they were cashiered, and if they deserted, they were whipped. Although Cromwell was a gentleman farmer with no military training in his background, he seemed to have a natural talent for leadership, and his men appreciated his leadership. Due to Cromwell's leadership, Parliament won the war. After the execution of Charles I and the conclusion of the war, as commander-in-chief appointed by Parliament, Cromwell believed that he was the only legally constituted authority left to rule. He therefore accepted an instrument of government by which he became Lord Protector, ruling the three nations of England, Scotland, and Ireland with the advice and help of a council of state and a parliament, which had to be called every three years. His aim was to reform the law, to set up a national Puritan church, to permit toleration outside of it, to promote education, and to decentralize administration. Cromwell was able to carry out reforms in education and law. By 1655, however, relations with Cromwell and Parliament began to deteriorate. In the spring of 1657, Parliament voted to invite Cromwell to become king. And in fact, George Washington, over a century later, would himself have, you know, was offered by some to become king of the United, what became the United States of America. Um, fortunately for us, Washington declined uh, and became just president. But uh, the English people at this point in time, a lot of them wanted to restore the monarchy. And, you know, they were willing to make Cromwell king, many of them. Since kingship was an office interwoven with the fundamental laws of the nation, as Cromwell himself stated, and there would be an end to constant innovation. In other words, after a after all this upheaval, there begins to be a desire to return to the system that they had before. Cromwell, however, refused to become king, and his health began to decline because he had contracted malaria, and it eventually killed him, and he died on September 3, 1658. Restoration of the monarchy in England took place in 1660, Charles I's son, Charles II, had lived as a fugitive in England throughout the years of the Commonwealth. He had had to flee from one part of England to another as the armies of Parliament chased him around. And then he finally fled to France in 1651. But with the death of Cromwell and the return of Charles II, the bishops were restored to Parliament, the House of Lords was reconstituted, and this uh, established once again a strict Anglican orthodoxy. The Church of England resumed its place of importance within English society. 
Although the Puritans returned to their former place of dissension to the established order, they continued their work of reform within England and the New World. So that concludes, uh, I know that was a lot of material. I did go through that uh, pretty fast, but that concludes our overview, and it was a quick one, of the English Civil War and the Puritans' role in that. Um, the interesting thing is, although many Americans are not aware of the English Civil War, because after all, mostly in school, you don't study English history, you study American history. But it's good to know that the English went through this experiment a few centuries before much of the rest of the world experienced the same sort of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, just as in the United States, there are a lot of people who are active in doing things like... Um, uh, Civil War reenactments and American War for Independence reenactments. Um, there are groups within England to this day that, uh, you know, men go out camping for a weekend or so and reenact some of the battles of the English Civil War. And if you want to join them, you can, there's, there's websites you can go to and you can sign up and, you know, you can go to England and participate in a English Civil War reenactment if you so choose. <laughs> uh, you might have to bring your own weapons, yes. <laughs> yeah, you might have to bring your own pike and musket. And uh, actually, I looked at one of the sites yesterday, and you are responsible for uh, obtaining your own true-to-the-period armor and, you know, the general type of dress that they wore. Um, so they wore these big, uh, underneath the armor, they wore these thick leather coats that went uh, basically went to their knees. Um, and, you know, a lot of men couldn't afford, you know, if you were an aristocrat, obviously you could afford a whole suit of armor. But if you were a poorer person, you know, if you were middle class or lower, you, all you might have protecting you was your thick leather coat. That, you know, for some men, that was about all there was. Um, but again, after all this upheaval, England went back to the England that we, you know, sort of assume has always been. Um, but the Puritans, the Puritans continued to be a thorn in the side of English monarchs after the Civil War, as well as they were before it. Um, I know we're just about out of time. Again, I encourage you, if you have questions, I, you know, you can talk to me afterwards. Look up things on the internet. Um, Google the Magna Carta. Read the Declaration of Independence. Read about some of these things. Wikipedia is a great place to start. Um, learn about uh, Cromwell. Um, also, I found a bunch of websites for all you homeschooling folks out there. There's actually websites that have resource materials for homeschoolers on the English Civil War. Uh, so if you're interested in something like that, I can point you in the right direction. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.